Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. We have got a cast iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's Correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and here in Dublin. As the dust settles over the seismic Irish general election result, Boris Johnson has been bedding down his election victory with a brutal cabinet reshuffle. We look at what the sacking of Northern Ireland Secretary Julian Smith might mean for Ireland and the Brexit process. And we'll be assessing how the UK is preparing to implement the Irish protocol with an internal commission document showing the EU will be taking a tough line on those checks and controls in the Irish Sea. And we look at the European Parliament's resolution on the forthcoming trade negotiations and whether this is all part of pre-negotiation shape-throwing. But first, Sean, to paraphrase the great Shane McGowan, Saj to say, I must be on my way. Indeed, so buy me beer and whiskey. It's uh, what a day that turned out to be, wasn't it? A real bombshell. There'd be lots of trails in the press, as we've come to expect, uh, from any uh, impending announcements from uh, Number 10 Downing Street, but none of them at least not in the past few weeks, have been mentioning uh, Sajid Javid. But that one really did explode on them. Uh, and of course, uh, in the evening time, broadcasters were digging out their clips of Boris Johnson saying not uh, less than 87 days ago that Sajid Javid was the man for the job, his chancellor, and definitely would be delivering the next budget, the post-Brexit budget. Uh, only it turned out he isn't. Because be delivering it, that post-Brexit budget. In fairness to him, Boris Johnson didn't sack him. He may have made his position untenable to a certain degree, resulting in Javid resigning himself on principle over excessive micromanagement, as he would have seen it, of his special advisers. Yes, and it's a particularly sensitive topic uh, for Javid for two reasons. Firstly, he had one of his special advisors, one of his closest uh, aides, sacked by Dominic Cummings a couple of months ago. Uh, she was escorted from Downing Street by the armed police uh, that are the uh, outside security uh, in that super secure location. It really didn't look good. Uh, it didn't have a good feel to it at all. Um, and Javid wasn't at all happy about it. Then coming back for more, being told, well, we don't just want one head on a stick. We want the whole team. Uh, that was simply too much for the guy. Uh, secondly, there's been this ongoing tension between him uh, and uh, Dominic Cummings and this whole idea of who gets to have the policy input control. Remember, you're not dealing with any old ministry here. This is the Treasury, the Finance Ministry, the money guys. Uh, they have always had a pretty independent position, uh, not just in British politics, but it tends to be the case in most, uh, certainly democratic countries, whoever has control of the money has a lot of control over the whole government apparatus because there are treasury officials, 
the finance guys in pretty much every department or at least keeping a very close eye on every department and making sure that they don't run amok with the checkbooks. Having the bigger policy control, uh, the, the input of ideas that these advisory teams have is very, very powerful and very important in the management of government. And that's why Number 10 is keen to get its its uh, hands on those additional levers of power. But it is a huge insult to somebody who holds that job to have their team stripped away from them, to have the locus of control on the, the policy ideas placed in the hands of Downing Street and effectively in the hands of the Prime Minister's special advisor, uh, Dominic Cummings, uh, but also Michael Gove, and then, of course, the Prime Minister himself, that triumvirate seemed to be the, the real key to driving policies. And it's been interpreted here as not just a power grab by number 10, but a money grab to make sure that there's less opposition from the Treasury to the kind of spending plans that the government have, particularly this idea of trying to capture votes in the north of England by spending a lot of money up in the north of England right now. And of course, it does have that counter cyclical effect as well. If there's any kind of Brexit related downturn or weakness in the economy, and there certainly is a weakness in the economy, uh, if not an outright downturn yet, uh, then uh, spending a big lump of government money uh, can be helpful in those circumstances. Uh, But the Treasury's job is always to be prudent about these things, to make sure that value for money gets delivered and that uh, crazy ideas Uh, don't get delivered. But we've seen a few crazy ideas floating around, notably that bridge between Scotland and Northern Ireland. In terms of the Brexit angle on this, how Brexity is the new cabinet? Rishi Sunak, the new chancellor, what side of the fence was he on? What's the kind of colour of the new cabinet? Colour me Brexity, definitely. It's... uh it does have a more Brexity feel and a more Boris Johnson loyalist feel uh, to it. Uh, and, I mean, Javid himself was considered loyal to Boris Johnson and, and Boris Johnson considered to be loyal to him. Uh, but uh, Sajid Javid, or Rishi Sunak, I should, should say, uh, the guy who's replaced him as the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister here uh, in the UK, his own deputy from that department, is perhaps more of a Boris loyalist and certainly is a favourite of Boris Johnson. Uh, He's pushed him out uh, onto various media appearances. Any of the uh, tricky assignments uh, for doing a bit of government communications, uh, Rishi Sunak is put out there on behalf of the government and does a very, very good job. He is an extremely good communicator. Uh, So good, in fact, that he stood in for Boris Johnson himself during one of the uh, leadership debates In the general election campaign, there was a debate held down in uh, Cardiff, uh, at which most of the party leaders were present, uh, but uh, Rishi Sunak was the one who was sent in uh, to bat for Boris Johnson. So he's effectively a stunt double for the tricky media uh, assignments, but very much uh, a Boris loyalist and somebody who is behind the Brexit project. Apparently, he'd done uh, an analysis of both the case for remaining and staying, as you'd expect of a a good analyst trained in the Goldman Sachs school, uh, and decided uh, that Brexit was the side to be on. Tony, does anyone in Brussels care who's in the cabinet? They know who's largely driving the Brexit policy and where that's been driven from. Do they care who they're dealing with ultimately on the other side of the table when they know what's coming down the tracks? Um, I think they do, um, and they, you know, are watching 
all of the incremental developments in British politics very closely. Uh, Phil Hogan, of course, the Irish Commissioner, uh, is go going to want to know who his opposite number will be on the trade side of things in the UK. Uh, Michael Gove, of course, uh, was seen as someone who would be uh, facing up to uh, Michel Barnier in terms of the figureheads of the negotiations that are coming forward. But, uh, I mean, yesterday being Thursday, there was quite a bit of, uh, I don't know, uh, surprise, I think is the best way to put it, at the sacking of Julian Smith, um, who was the Northern Ireland secretary. And that was seen as a very unusual move, given how much he was supported and liked by both sides of the community in Northern Ireland and by the Irish government. And he's been really instrumental in the... Irish angle to the the Brexit negotiations for a long time when the joint report was initially about to be published back in December 2017 and the DUP were being briefed on its contents. He was the man who was briefing the DUP on uh, what this joint report meant and of course that's where the backstop was, was uh, given sort of first uh, flesh in the light of day. Um, and he was seen as someone who could speak truth to power. Uh, one official I spoke to yesterday said, you know, if there was an elephant in the room, he would point it out. Uh, that and that may be have been the rock he perished on. That may have been the rock he perished on, exactly. He was seen as someone who was not quite so compliant and docile uh, when dealing with Boris Johnson and dealing with the Brexit issue. There was an issue over the whole no-deal mood that we were in back last year and there were calls by ardent Brexiteers for the UK to suspend all security cooperation with the EU in a no-deal situation and Julian Smith was out of the traps very quickly to say that would not go down well in Northern Ireland because you rely on security cooperation between Britain and Ireland uh, when it comes to extradition and uh, the rule of law and so on in Northern Ireland. So I think that was noted by Brexiteers and they didn't right. like it effectively. And uh, you, paint so they, a, you, you paint a picture of a man who keeps raising that inconvenient issue of Ireland, which isn't going down well. That <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Today, Tony, you've been looking at a new document by the European Commission. What's in it? What's the significance of it? And what kind of flashpoints should we be looking for arising from maybe the reaction to this? Because it deals with this joint committee issue, which will go to some way towards dispute resolution and everything else. So maybe lay out some of the the details and we can get into then perhaps what might come out of this. Sure well the European Commission as we've been talking about before on the podcast has been doing a lot of preparation with member states going through all of the areas uh, that will be covered by the future trade negotiations and the overall future relationship so you've got trade security data protection uh, science, research, energy cooperation, the whole gamut of how the two uh, entities will relate to each other post-Brexit. But of course, there is the cool question of how you implement the withdrawal agreement. That is now a, a piece of international law. The withdrawal agreement, as we know, come into force on the 1st of February. So it's now international law. Now, from our uh, angle uh, with the podcast, of course, we're interested in the Irish protocol. Uh, now, one of the seminars that the European Commission held with member states as part of this preparation over the past six weeks or so was on the implementation of the key parts of the of the withdrawal agreement that were the difficult parts. So, for example, uh, th there will be six specialised committees that will deal with the financial settlement. 
that will deal with citizens' rights, that will deal with Gibraltar, uh, the British military base in Cyprus, and of course the Irish border. Now what this uh, internal uh, document, it's a working paper that was circulated to member states, spells out is that uh, the Irish protocol will will have to be implemented. That protocol obviously gives rise to uh, checks and controls on goods on the Irish Sea, goods going from uh, Great Britain to Northern Ireland and to a lesser extent in the other direction. Um, and it's, it made it clear that, uh, first of all, these checks and controls would have to take place uh, from a customs point of view. They would also have to take place from a regulatory uh, food safety, animal health point of view. So all of these uh, claims and declarations by Boris Johnson and other Brexiteers that there would be no need for checks at all. Uh, this document crisply uh, overrules that and says, yes, there will be checks. And this is agreed in the internationally uh, binding, uh, legally binding agreement that we've all signed up to. But I think to, to the key message, I think, uh, that I was drawn attention to in this document was that there's going to be a two uh, twin track approach to this. The first track is the EU is going to insist that these checks and controls are uh, implemented, that, they, that there's a setup there in Northern Ireland in the ports and airports for the checks and controls to happen. And the second track will be for the joint committee to look at what goods can enjoy an exemption, uh, a tariff exemption. Uh, but the key message from Brussels and this document is that these two tracks are completely separate. Now, what, why they're saying that is that they're, they are worried that uh, with these declarations from Boris Johnson that there are not going to be any checks and controls, that when it comes down to it later this year, uh, there's a suspicion that the UK will want the Joint Committee to somehow start renegotiating you know, what checks and controls have to happen. Uh, now, the message from Brussels is guys, that's agreed, that's in the withdrawal agreement, that's already something you've signed up to. We're not going to get into a negotiation with you over what checks and controls uh, apply. In our view, all the checks and controls will apply, but the Joint Committee will look at what gets exempted uh, okay. from that. Well, before we get into the Joint Committee, Sean, there has been, to a certain degree, an element of expectation management in the UK. We've heard Michael Gove speaking about, of course, there will be some level of friction between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, there has been already a preparatory rollback from the position we heard during the general election. Yes, and uh, I mean, that fits with a pattern. Uh, if you go way back to the days when uh, leading Conservatives were saying uh, trade deals with the EU could be sorted out in an afternoon over a cup of tea uh, to the position now of, well, yes, there will be uh, friction in there. I mean, we can remember Dan Hannan during the Brexit campaign, the MEP, saying nobody's talking at all about leaving the single market. Well, uh, that's yeah. gone and done. Nigel uh, so Farage talking about Norway and Switzerland enjoying life outside the European Union and then turning tail and describing those models as not really Brexit once the result was in. So there's been a lot of it about... So we can all throw slices of, of that big salami on the table and say, look what's happening. And the question now is how many more slices are going to come off the salami as this process uh, proceeds forward? So, yeah, you're right. The, the expectation management uh, is going on there now in the consultations they're having with industry. They're saying, well, look, chaps, time to get ready. Uh, there will be uh, customs frictions. It's just going to happen. Uh, and that's the price we're going to have to pay in order to have this uh, much vaunted independent uh, trade relationship with the rest of the world. 
Uh, in terms of other uh, expectation managements and, and changes in direction, uh, and just getting back, if if I could for a moment, to that cabinet reshuffle, one of the uh, changes that uh, interested me was the change of attorney general from uh, Geoffrey Cox, he of the uh, big booming voice, uh, to Suella Braverman, uh, another barrister, uh, of course, uh, as attorney general, uh, but also uh, very much a Brexiter, a former chair indeed of the ERG, the European Research Group, uh, within the Tory party. Uh, she had also resigned uh, as deputy to uh, Dominic Raab when he was the uh, DEXEU. He'd taken over from uh, David Davis. Uh, she was his deputy there. They both resigned in protest at the deal that uh, Theresa May had done with the European Union. And one of the things that she was particularly opposed to was the uh, Northern Ireland backstop. Uh, didn't like that one at all. Uh, interesting enough character, I think, uh, Suella Braverman. An ex-Erasmus student, would you believe, had done uh, two years in Paris at the Sorbonne uh, doing an, uh, her master's in European and French law. So she has some insight into these matters, but it'll be interesting to see uh, going forward. She will be the person that the government will be relying on for legal advice, and if there is any uh, legal slippage or ways through things like the Irish Protocol, uh, she will be the, the person who will be advising the government on that. So I think she is a key change in this new, more Brexity type of cabinet uh, to keep an eye on and keep an eye on that uh, legal advice on uh, how they deal with the European Union. Most of the reaction here in London, it has to be said, uh, coming in terms of her statements about the uh, judiciary and uh, being seen as trying to rein in uh, the judiciary from interfering, as they would see it, in political matters. Uh, she doesn't have direct control over the judiciary uh, as AG, of course, but nevertheless, you can see some of the thought processes there uh, as this cabinet starts to take hold and Boris Johnson now, who's seen at the, being at the zenith of his powers uh, with this enormous majority, uh, that this is the, the real emergence of the direction of travel that this government wants to go in. The irony being that the, some of the flashpoints between uh, pro-Brexit parliamentarians and the courts in the UK, particularly the Supreme Court, was there were a couple of key decisions that highlighted the centrality of Parliament. Number one, that Parliament would have to get the final vote on the withdrawal from the European Union. And secondly, that the prorogation of Parliament uh, was was illegal. So what had been argued during Brexit of the people are sovereign and the centrality of Parliament must be brought back into being uh, with exit from the European Union. It's those very decisions that highlighted the role of Parliament that has led to the judiciary in the UK being unpopular with the pro-Brexit lobby. Indeed. Tony, going back to the joint committees and, and the operations of them, has there been anything in terms of any mention of the uh, European Court of Justice in this? Has that been laid out any clearer and can we expect anything there that might bring to a head this whole discussion about the role of the court? Uh, I mean, there's been quite a bit uh, said recently uh, on the European Court of Justice and the fact that they might have a backdoor into the UK via the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol. Um, now, this is something we talked about before back in January and, and uh, RT had a report on it. Um, but, I mean, clearly Northern Ireland is uh, going to be in the single market, so it is subject to uh, EU state aid rules uh, and, and the European Court of Justice. Um, but British lawyers have now got, suddenly got wise to the uh, reality that the European Commission is taking a very broad 
look at the question of state aid and how it applies in the Irish protocol. So just say you have uh, a company in Belfast that uh, gets components or raw materials or inputs from a company in uh, Reading. That company in Reading has enjoyed a government subsidy. Uh, so therefore, the, the company in Belfast who uh, gets those subsidised inputs or components is at um, a, an economic advantage over a similar company, company south of the border. Uh, and, and the whole point about EU state aid rules is it, it makes sure that member states don't get an advantage by subsidising their, their companies uh, over another member state's companies. Uh, so that means that the, 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 the European Court of Justice and EU state aid rules could look at that scenario and say, well, hang on a second, this company in Belfast is able to avail of this subsidised uh, widget or whatever from Reading. So that means uh, we have to apply EU state aid rules, not just to the company in, in Belfast, but the company in Reading as well. So you can see how the way the Commission is looking at this, that the, the Court of Justice has a certain capture uh, of the UK via the Irish Protocol. And this is something that British lawyers have suddenly just got wise to and they don't like it. And there, there was a, a very instructive um, House of Lords committee hearing during the week. Uh, the EU committee in the House of Lords were uh, questioning three experts on the Irish Protocol. There was Colin Murray uh, from the University of Newcastle, Sylvia DeMars, who's also from Newcastle but works in the House of Commons Library, and of course David Hennig, who is a leading trade expert. Um, and they were all trying to understand how this Irish protocol will work, given that at the same time Northern Ireland is going to be applying EU law and it's going to be applying British law. And it's sort of caught in this weird Venn diagram uh, where nobody seems to know which law is going to prevail. And it's also complicated by the fact that, you know, Northern Ireland is a devolved administration. It has competence for some laws, but not others. It doesn't have competence, for example, on for the UK's trade policy. But yet it's going to be a, applying and implementing the protocol, which is effect, effectively a trading regime. Um, and the whole question, again, of, of uh, state aid rules uh, came up in that, uh, in, in that uh, hearing. But it just shows you that while the EU is saying this is all agreed, it's up to the UK to implement this and legislate for it. There's real turmoil in the British system as to how this is actually going to work uh, because of these overlaps in legislation uh, and, uh, again, this sort of unexpected shadow of the, of the European Court of Justice uh, when it comes to state aid. Well, what, what, when you say European state aid rules would apply, what happens there? Is there a, a fine or a sanction imposed? Are the goods simply blocked? What does that mean? Well, this is something that is going to have to be worked out. Now, in general terms, uh, there's going to be an overall joint committee of the UK and the EU m sort of managing and, uh, you know, vouchsafing for the, for, for the withdrawal agreement. Uh, and if there's a dispute, um, then uh, there, it, it will go to arbitration. But if there's a point of EU law, again, as we talked about this last week, then the EU believes that it should go to the European Court of Justice. Um, but, uh, you know, in general terms, uh, the, the Joint Committee is going to have to work out the schedule of tariff exemptions, what kind of goods can be deemed as not at risk of crossing the Irish border once they've gone across the Irish Sea into Northern Ireland. Are there 
again, components of, of goods that will go into the manufacture of a product in Northern Ireland that then goes tariff-free across the border. Uh, all of these issues are, are going to uh, come up, and I think the ECJ is going to have a big role to play in how that's all bedded down and implemented. And the view uh, by the experts in that House of Lords committee was that, yes, the ECJ could take the UK to court, uh, and it could find the UK as if it was a member state. Sean, just uh, you mentioned the reaction to, you were both indeed looking at the removal of Julian Smith from the post as uh, Northern Ireland Secretary. One of the things that's come up over the last number of months has been the personal relationships established. One of them was between Simon Coveney and Julian Smith. And the other one, of course, was between uh, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach here, and Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister. What kind of reaction has there been in your respective bailiwicks to the changing political landscape in Ireland, particularly the prospect of Sinn Féin entering government from their previously what they would describe as Euro-critical point of view, and obviously, Sean, in your neck of the woods, there is no love lost traditionally between Sinn Féin and British governments. Uh, there isn't, uh, but uh, first off, let me just say uh, that it was actually great fun observing the very confident commentators uh, in the British commentariat asserting all kinds of utter nonsense about names. the Irish electoral system. <laughs> I, 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 there are far too many, there are far, far too numerous there, Tony, but the, the, the prize had to go to the uh, uh, chap who said uh, Leo Varadkar had lost his seat when the first count result came in. Uh, from uh, Mr. Varadkar's constituency. It took until the fifth count for him to get elected, but uh, anybody who knows anything about STV knows uh, you rarely get uh, an entire constituency filled on the first count. Uh, It was, of course, notable that the Taoiseach of the day didn't get in on the first count, uh, but it's not unprecedented. Yes, it was great fun observing that uh, and a lot of the hot takes which uh, arrived like uh, the rather bad food you get in some English pubs that seem to have steam rising from them when they emerge from the microwave oven but are actually stone cold inside because they haven't been done properly at all. Uh, The reaction, of course, with uh, Sinn Féin uh, rising up uh, in the vote was immediately, my God, this is all about Brexit and it's therefore all about us here in England, uh, in particular uh, the UK in general. But that was not the perception on the ground uh, in Ireland. Uh, and certainly wasn't borne out by the opinion polls that well, had health and housing as yeah, the two big issues. That's true. Uh, and Brexit rated down at the very bottom. I mean, when people were asked the direct question, uh, was it a Brexit election? Uh, no. Uh, yeah, one, one, one percent. 1% in the RTE, Cahar, UCD, Irish Times, Ipsos MRBI opinion poll. I think I've got in all the stakeholders on, on that one. I think 1% said yeah, they based their vote on Brexit. Having said that and this is purely surmise and speculation, the idea that a number of UK Tory politicians and the general seeming indifference to Ireland and pronouncements on Ireland over the course of three years of Brexit, did that do something to dial up sentiment in Ireland that would have made voters slightly more sympathetic to Sinn Féin? Who knows? There'll probably have to be more qualitative research done on that, but maybe... I'm sure there certainly the, will have to be it, more qualitative research done on it. Um, I'm sure it's the you know, in terms of the only research that we have to hand is the one that says one percent was the the driving factor uh, in their uh, vote. And you know, Sinn Fein had their views on Brexit, but remember, one of the remarkable things about the uh, Irish uh, response 
to Brexit, the political Ireland response has been the uh, solidarity, if you like, uh, between the political parties. They really have not been uh, at each other's throats over the Brexit issue in ways that they have been about normal political issues. Uh, there has been a, a remarkable uniformity of views of just getting behind their government negotiator, whoever that may be, and saying, let them do the job and working on a pretty consensual basis. So because you didn't have that conflict uh, breaking out on the floor of the parliament or in the committee rooms or even through the uh, usual channels in the media, uh, it, because that was absent from the political debate, the actual political debate was all of the other regular issues. Absolutely, health, 100%. Etc., etc. That, that, et et that didn't stop ill-informed commentary in the UK from the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg was one particular example saying that Leo Varadkar had gone intensely nationalistic because he feared the rise of Sinn Féin on his flank and they were misinterpreting what elections were going on at various times and merely suggesting that maybe some of the commentary in the UK exemplified like perhaps the Honourable Member for Somerset may have played Indeed. into a certain reawakening or reminder to Irish voters of what some attitudes in the UK might be towards this fair isle. But I, as I say, and as you say, Sean, qualitative research in time will get to the bottom of that. What about you, Tony? What's the reaction been in Brussels to the re election outcome? Mm, yeah, well, I mean, I, I was just going to try to make the point there. Sorry, sorry for cutting across you there, Sean. But uh, I mean, I think a counterfactual would be if Leo Varadkar had not managed to get the deal he did on the border and avoiding a hard border, you can probably guess that his the Fine Gael score would have been an awful lot worse uh, and, you know, the Sinn Féin sentiment would have been even higher. Um, but that being said, I mean, again, people were really shocked over here at the scale of the, the Sinn Féin vote um, and we're asking questions about what that would mean for Brexit, what it would mean for United Ireland. One interesting comparison that a, a Danish colleague uh, said to me was, hey, it's just like uh, Syriza back in 2015. Um, the, the left-wing fairly hard left uh, Syriza party in Greece uh, becoming the party of government, uh, you know, in the heat of the, the Greek uh, bailout meltdown and so on. Um, here you have another situation where uh, a left wing party comes from nowhere, it seems uh, to be on the threshold of, of running a government uh, in Ireland. Um, but I think, you know, people were just asking, well, you know, why did this uh, take place? Was it Brexit? Uh, was it something else? Uh, you know, there, there was no rush to judgment, certainly, uh, on the on the EU side, uh, more kind of polite questioning as to what the factors were. Um, and of course, people uh, understood that, you know, Ireland is and has been a booming economy, but yet we have these structural, uh, deep-rooted problems that uh, successive governments can't seem to uh, address. Well, I think precisely because it's a booming economy, rent and the the speed at which the boom came back meant that rent prices spiked and supply of housing hadn't kept hadn't kept pace with that a lot of the building in dublin has been focused on student accommodation because you don't have to build basements for parking with student accommodation so you can throw up these buildings a lot more quickly hotels have also been attractive again you can turn a book on that uh, that a lot more quickly. Large-scale residential developments, investment funds, a.k.a. vulture funds, have bought into them uh, in large measure and are turning them around for, you know, buying multiple properties to rent them out in this rising rental market. So there's been that has been a particular uh, pinch point as well. 
But overall, the, the sort of the doomsday scenarios that have been laid out in the aftermath of this election, number one, there's uh, Fianna Fáil on 38 seats, Fine Gael on 35, Sinn Féin on 37. There's 80 seats needed to make up a, a majority government. So nobody is going to have their own way on this. And only today, Sinn Féin was out saying that they're not going to be able to do it without one of the big natural parties of government here to four that now includes Sinn Féin. We now have, have three big parties. But apart from the doomsday scenarios where terms like Venezuela were being bandied about, about Sinn Féin entering power, it seems to forget that the fiscal treaty compact was passed in 2012 and that no, nobody, no matter what they, they, they plan, and it, for, for the record, Sinn Féin isn't saying it would breach any of the fiscal rules, but even if a left-wing party wanted to do it, it would bring it into immediate conflict with the European Commission. So I don't really see it happening. No, I mean, they're, they're, uh, you're right that like people will be watching, obviously, if, if there is a Sinn Féin uh, government or a government involving Sinn Féin, uh, you know what the spending priorities would be. I mean, as as far as I'm aware, you know, they, they their party manifesto said that they did want to balance budget, uh, and you know, while they were talking about huge uh, spending on housing, and that they were keeping one eye on those uh, fiscal pact, uh, fiscal fiscal compact rules. Uh, you know, it remains to be seen, but uh, you can you can be rest assured that. You know, the European Commission will be keeping a close eye on, on developments. Well, the European Commission might be heartened to know that Sinn Féin is looking to reap more taxes from the intangible assets of foreign multinationals who the European Commission is currently trying to get in sights as well through Apple and other judgments. So it may be one of those rare occasions where the European Commission and uh, Sinn Féin are ad idem and other parties who would see themselves as more pro-European than Sinn Féin are, are the dissenters on, the, on that particular point. Yeah, I mean that this this is uh, this is the thing. This election happens at an extremely interesting and uh, fruitful discussion uh, across Europe about the big multinationals, uh, digital taxation, uh, corporate tax levels. Uh, there's a drumbeat of sentiment which is n- no longer confined to the the margins. It's a mainstream belief now that uh, taxation and fair taxation and big multinationals paying their fair share uh, is the way to go. And you know, I definitely think that uh, corporate tax, that bogeyman uh, of for for successive Irish governments, I think that is going to loom large in the post-Brexit era, uh, and Ireland will have to. Uh, fight its corner without the support and uh, comfort of the UK being at its side. Sean, it's worth kind of noting as well that Ireland has gone through much more difficult changes of government before in uh, when Ireland was in a far more precarious situation. I mean, if we go back to 1932, when Fianna Fáil was the recent participant in a civil war where members of the National Army and the Garda Síochána had been shot during the Civil War. They came in on a platform of abolishing the military tribunal to crack down on the IRA, releasing political prisoners, burning the bondholders with regard to land annuity payments uh, to Britain. They came in, they sacked the Garda Commissioner, they packed the special branch with their own people, they rifled through justice files to see what files had been kept on them, and they'd reintroduced the military tribunal within four years and became the IRA's worst enemy. So it's not like... We haven't been in a situation where there has been fears of a transition of government before that has proven to be for naught. Indeed, and the democratic record of Ireland is very good in that respect, uh, as indeed is the uh, longevity of the uh, Irish constitution um, compared to most 20th century uh, European constitutions. 
certainly. So, yeah, the, the institutions of the state uh, are pretty strong. Uh, in regards to the uh, economic uh, policies from Sinn Féin, a lot of it looks like fairly run-of-the-mill um, European social democracy. Uh, nothing, uh, as far as I could see, anywhere near as radical as the uh, agenda that Syriza came to power on. But uh, I was in Greece reporting uh, at the time of the uh, Syriza government and their, uh, the white heat of their crisis in the summer of 2015. And a lot of the people there were saying to me, look, we voted for Syriza because we've tried every other form of government, uh, but nobody has uh, been able to get done what we need to get done and, and help us in the way that we need to be helped. So you do have that uh, situation where once you've tried everything else, you are looking for something new uh, and something new now is a Sinn Féin type of government. Also, bear in mind, Syriza formed a coalition government. Uh, they didn't have uh, a majority on their own. Uh, they went into coalition with a right wing uh, nationalist uh, government uh, party uh, whose main concern was getting control of the defence ministry, which is a very high spending ministry uh, in the uh, Greek setup. Uh, and then, as we know, they went through that crisis period uh, in Greece and ended up implementing the uh, bailout programmes that were specified for them by the European Commission uh, and the IMF uh, and emerged in pretty decent shape financially uh, at the other end. So, yeah, I mean, if Sinn Féin end up in a coalition government, how radical is the programme going to be? They have to agree a government programme. The priorities that people in Ireland want to see happening from the opinion polling uh, and from a lot of the um, activist work that Sinn Féin have been concentrating on are in that area of housing, uh, health Trends. reforms, yeah, possibly quality, the pension changes and other things. And then the after that, it's where does the policy go? So obviously, if you have Sinn Féin in government, then the uh, European politique uh, becomes more interesting, certainly to the Europeans. And then whatever influence they may have on the Brexit negotiations uh, becomes more interesting, particularly in areas like the Joint Committee and the implementation uh, of uh, the uh, the front stop uh, issue. Uh, but in terms of direct negotiations, well, you know, the direct negotiations on Brexit are done between the British government and the European Commission. Ireland obviously operates the common commercial policy. All right. Well, we have limited time left. Tony, I know you have to be elsewhere. So can we do a quick roundup um, for what's coming ahead in the coming week? From this neck of the woods, it's going to be endless talks about uh, government formation. Something will pop up, uh, no doubt. If not, they've got 90 days. It's off to the president to either dissolve the doll or tell them to go back and try and form a government at some point during this. But we'll have kind of groundhog conversations on the national airwaves here throughout that period. What about you, Tony? Yeah, well, <clears throat> the big uh, issue next week for us here in Brussels is there's going to be a special EU summit. Uh, leaders are coming over to try and break the logjam on the seven-year budget, uh, which, of course, is going to be €60 billion Euro, uh, sh uh, shy uh, because of the UK's uh, departure. So there's a big scrap going on that we, we haven't actually touched upon in the podcast between what are called the frugal four, uh, the countries like the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden and Austria who uh, don't want any big increase in the EU budget and then other countries uh, called the Friends of Cohesion, uh, Ireland among them who think uh, a, an increase is absolutely vital if the EU is going to tackle the big issues that, that it uh, says it cares about such as climate change, uh, migration and so on. Interestingly, uh, Leo Varadkar will probably be here next week even though it's 
uh, it's going to clash with the, um, the, 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 the new Doyle assembling. Uh, so uh, if he does come, then that means he could be making a decision on part of the on, on behalf of the Irish state, uh, which he will then bequeath uh, on uh, the next government. Uh, so uh, this will be an interesting summit uh, to, to look out for. Right, you might catch him at some point during his uh, during his time there at a microphone. Sean, what about you? Well, yeah, the EU budget, that big bad bogeyman, of course, uh, the British don't particularly care about that anymore, and then they won't be going to the, those budget talks anyway. Uh, they will be more concerned with how do they spend whatever uh, savings they get from not participating in the uh, next budget round, but more immediately they will be concentrating on their own uh, national budget, uh, which was due for uh, early March, uh, to be delivered by that man, Sajid Javid, who is no longer uh, part of the government, of course. So is Mr Sunak going to require a bit more time to shape this uh, budget, this first post-Brexit budget, uh, and see how that goes? And that's where a lot of the uh, politics uh, is going to be, the the high politics of Britain in the next week. Unless, of course, it's already been written for him. That's it from me, Colm O'Munga, an RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.